so we are rolling now. Oh, look at that. So I'm going to count us down. Shit. Uh, What's my name? Xander as in the bird. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. In three, <laughs> two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome to Missing Out. It's the retrospective that's introspective. I am Tari J. Miller. I am Lex Michael. And we're joined by a really special guest today. It's Xander Robin. This laser sounds so expensive. Uh, we're upping Hello. the budget. Yeah. So. Uh, Hello. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, Lex, tell us who Xander is. Uh, Xander, how long have we known each other? Um, what year is it? It's 20, I think it's still 2017. 2017. So we met in 2004, five? Well, well, technically we met in middle school. We met in middle school. But we didn't really have any contact we, we in played, middle school. We played Foursquare in middle school. That's, we did play Foursquare in and middle school. And you played on the Bearcats. Yes! For West Boca basketball team. Yes! When I was doing like the weird intramural sports yeah. that I no longer do. Uh, but it was in high school, like, yeah, 2004 We became friends in high school. Yeah. I didn't like movies until I met Mr. Lex. See, that's very flattering. Because yeah. tell, tell the, the fine I people listening. I thought movies were stupid. Um, the only movies, I liked cartoons. I liked like Rugrats. But I also like, the only movies I saw were like Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> and The Matrix Reloaded. Sure. Great films. You're really so, into the less successful sequels. Yeah. Of very popular movies. Yeah. Scream 4. Scream 4. Really? Uh, I don't dislike Scream 4. Mm, I don't love Scream 4. I don't dislike it. I didn't like them. I, I just had seen them. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. I thought movies were stupid. I wanted to be a skateboarder. I used to want to have been a musician. I do remember that. Um, but somehow I met you and you. I remember giving you a list at one yeah. point. And it was, it was just like, check all these out. And it was very much like the standard list of things a, a white male in high school would be really right. into. It was like Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino and like right. very much in that direction. Yeah. I will, I will say that Pulp Fiction is a good movie. And yeah. I, and I liked it a lot. And I still like it a lot. Is that where you're planting your flag? Um, no, I mean, quite like, a stance. Well, you know, a lot of the movies, like I said, you, that you showed me, I look back at them and I'm like, hmm. Those are movies that a 15-year-old dude right. likes. Yeah, a lot of them don't necessarily hold, hold up, up all completely. that well. Yeah. But like Pulp Fiction, I, I'll go back to. But whatever. And um, so today you today. brought us a... So I, yeah, I, y- y'all asked me to come up with a movie that people hadn't seen before. I had I'd only heard your other uh, podcast. So I didn't, you know, I don't know the whole uh, canon of this. So I naturally picked... Possession, because we had actually spoken about Possession by Zulowski. Yes. Because to me, Possession is like the number one movie of like, there's before I've seen this movie and after I've seen this movie. It does. It feels very much like a movie that if you're a cinephile, you only bump into what, you know, once every five, six, seven years. Well, like there's like a repertory screening of it every, like, you know, every five years. And then somehow like there's a conversation about the movie again. And it wasn't even until like couple of years ago that I had seen this movie and I'd been, you know, avidly watching and making films for since pretty much we became friends in high school. Yeah. And, you know, no, it was, it was the last couple of years for me as well. And I want to say, um, I 
want to say it might have. I'd read about it, but I want to say maybe our friend Jay saw it. Maybe. And then told me about it. He's like, dude, you got to watch this. And he might listen to this and go, that didn't happen. But yeah. in my head, it was Jay. And I watched it, and I thought it was incredible. So I went out of my way to grab It's weird. It's very... It's out of print in the U.S., so it's a little bit... Oh, okay. I apologize to you guys listening if you're Taunted. trying to find this movie. Yeah. Uh, I didn't say that. Yeah. Um, they won't find get you. it. That's <laughs> all we'll it. say. We, we'll find, it's floating around out there, it. but I went out of my way to get the now out of print uh, Mondo Blu-ray, mm -hmm. uh, and it's like it's incredible. Like I, If you can track it down and you want to shell out that, I think it, it'll cost you maybe 40 bucks to get a pre-owned copy. Uh, well worth it because they did an incredible job cleaning this movie up and there's a ton of additional stuff on the disc that I still now this podcast will be my excuse to finally go and like yeah. listen to Zalowski talk over it for two hours um there's a commentary yeah oh wow that's crazy it's uh this is a bonkers movie yes. yeah uh that is continuously throughout my notes it's just like something banana happens or, or just just crazy reactions to things like all throughout um that i just i it took me a while to wrap my brain around just the just the extent to which these characters were acting the shit out of these scenes yeah i mean a lot of people for, i mean look okay first of all the, i think the biggest thing that gets discussed when we talk about possession is the the audacity of the performances Performance. yeah and well, like xander you were talking about well because I, I this is why i was actually excited to talk about this movie with you because you're an actor and this is like a type of movie that is like sent around as memes that actors like send to each other. They're like, it's like when the director tells you to go all the way. And it's like all people that I, we, you ask me, you're like, how many of those people do you think had seen the movie? And I'm like, I would like to hope some of them, but probably not. You just, there's like a scene that we could even cut to right now. The audio, maybe <laughs> just of, of her of, in the, in the tunnel. tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an actor giving her all to a scene um, that, people could look at and be like, haha, like, you know, over the top. But it, it's, um, w when you give that much to a performance and it's so specific, it's, it's, it's not over the top. It's, right. It's, it's uh, that was, that was a thought that I kept having as well. And it's it just the, the scene that you're talking about is the scene where if you haven't seen this movie, I can almost guarantee you've seen this meme of yeah. Isabella Gianni's character, uh, essentially having a miscarriage out of her face in this tunnel and she's yeah. uh the direction that uh Zulowski gave to her apparently was uh, the only direction he gave her was fuck the air oh my god and that was it that was the entire thing and like yeah. isabella gianni uh uh infamously said after the fact i think maybe in an interview that it felt like emotional pornography mm -hmm. and i actually feel like that's a good way to very broadly describe a lot of the extremity of the performances in this movie and like Xander, what you just said about how when actors go that big and that intense, there might be a tendency on the part of some viewers to label it as over the top yeah. and unrealistic. But okay, this is going to be the first of several times I bring up Twin Peaks in this conversation. Sure. Think about the... Tari, you haven't seen it. We'll rectify this at some okay. point. Should but I cover you, my ears? But no, no, no. I'm not going to spoil anything. Yeah, but the, It's unspoilable. In the, in the pilot... Right off the bat, you see these characters dealing with unspeakable grief. And grief is an emotion that in media, especially on TV, especially at the time, was not an emotion that you saw depicted in a way that you really had to sit in. 
as an audience member. And to watch somebody in life experience genuine extreme grief is incredibly uncomfortable. There's really nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing sexy about it. There's nothing cool about it. And so when you see it on screen, no matter how honest it is, if you're not used to it, I think, yeah, it's incredibly jarring. And it is so unfamiliar in terms of the types of performances we're used to seeing that it's yeah. like, I don't know where to put this in my brain. Especially when you send that clip out of context of right. the movie. So I think, you know, if you're giving a performance like that out of context, obviously it's melodrama. Like a film I made when I was like, right when I got into film school was like, I was so inspired by like, like scenes in like this movie called Two Lovers of like, of this type of grief. And I just wanted to make a movie with those scenes. And the, my teacher was like, it's melodrama if you have no context. Sure. It's just like, it's, if I don't understand, first of all, the actor is not going to have a, uh, a good time understanding of this uh, emotion. And uh, when I watch it, I have no idea why anyone's feeling this way. So I, I see it as melodramatic. Uh, but I also think it's amazing that people are sending around memes because this movie is such a discovery movie to me. And also the lengths and the insanity of the performances feel like it's a movie made by a Martian. Yes. Like it's like, it feels like, it's just like a portal into something totally insane. The movie itself feels insane mm -hmm. in a way that I feel like a lot of movies, even movies that are loaded with bonkers, insane stuff, yeah. don't necessarily feel. But also so like specific, because even if like to go against what I said about melodrama, the beginning scenes when I was rewatching it this morning of like uh, the f when they are in the restaurant and they're like uh, side by side and they have that first sort of like fight and it creates this like chaos and there's like chairs going everywhere it's so the uh, the performance in that is so huge but it's of an emotion that's not totally surreal yet so, right uh and that's like the first taste of like this movie's going to go all the way to 11 and then somehow goes over that that hurdle like mm -hmm. they keep putting the bar higher of how intense the performances can be and they keep jumping over it and it feels so, even though, yeah, it's all so heightened and so aggressive and so crazy, it feels incredibly honest. Yeah. And that offsets the the size, the sheer size of these performances. And it makes it so, so immediate and uncomfortable. And yeah. of course, the style in which Jalowski shot it, it's not a documentary style. It's, or, it it's, feels a, like, it's a little all over the place because there's some moments where I'm just like, fuck yeah, it's like a documentary. It's like just like so gritty and it's all, it's like, uh, am I not allowed to say fuck? Yeah. You can say whatever you want. I can say whatever yeah, I want. I already okay. said fuck. Okay. Uh, but there's some moments where it's just like, it's just like sideways tracking shots. I'm just like, all right, you know, you're just, you're just <laughs> capturing it. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> but maybe like there must be some like some intention behind everything. But I feel like he was a very intuitive filmmaker and he's just like, uh, there's some moments that feel like purely like incredible. The camera, the way the camera is just like capturing something that feels just very dangerous. Yeah. And this is kind of why I'm attracted to movies where the performances feel dangerous. Like they're risking so much giving a performance like that. Cause sometimes you ask like a performer, you're like, Oh no, I want you to go there for me. And like, I feel like this hasn't really happened totally to me, but like, uh, there's a lot of people that might say like, well, you know, my agent or my blah, blah, blah. Or, like, I don't know if I want to make myself like go to these places. Cause you never know who's going to see it. And it might be taken out of context. I might be put on mrskin.com. You know, you never know. Right. Um, uh, so just the, the bravery and especially like back in the day, like I think there, there was a little bit more bravery cause you're not, you're not afraid of getting like put on world star. Right. Know? 
<laughs> or even just having, you know, somebody, you're, if you're shooting exteriors, right? Just having somebody walk by and snap a photo and put it all over Twitter sure. and it's taken out of context and it makes you look foolish in a way that you wouldn't if they saw the entire thing. Yeah. So, you know, not to say like nowadays things suck, but like, you know, we have to appreciate the moments in time where they were able to make these decisions, like more films with these like uh, brave decisions were being made. Yeah, there's a rawness to it for sure that I think you see less and less now. And when you do see it, I mean, I think there have been only a handful of movies in the last couple of years where it feels that immediate and that mm -hmm. like, oh my God, like what, what is this? That, that sense of discovery that you were describing. Um, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to achieve that purity now because of all of exactly what you're describing, all of this additional noise where you co-opt pieces of the thing. And so the entire conversation becomes about pieces instead of the whole. But okay, so speaking of pieces in the right. whole, I feel like we should get into what this movie is actually about. about. Yeah. Sure, go for it. I feel it. like we should give them a, like our listeners a little bit of context. It's, essentially, it's a story following Mark, who's played by Sam Neill. Um, he's in the midst of a divorce. He has a kid with this woman, and she's she keeps disappearing. He believes it's a like another man and it turns out to be another man but in addition to that man it's also <laughs> like a, a lovecraft monster lovecraft monster basically yeah. um and so like as as it starts you don't get it's like an hour into the movie where it, the like bonkersness of it's, it happens right, the performances are extreme but it for all intents and purposes it's a relatively straightforward story about yeah. a very harrowing divorce yeah right but, but, told, but told with these like this like surreal heightenedness that you're like hoping might lead to something at least one but also like you know think about the marketing of the movie it's like it's it was marketed like a horror well like of course that, you have that to. medusa yeah. image right like with a snake yeah and it's interesting thing about movies in context of marketing because you know some people watch movies without having seeing any images but everyone's going into it expecting something so it's good that they deliver this like heightened emotion at the beginning but if you didn't know anything about it you're watching this movie you're like wow this is some serious, just regular drama. Well, and yeah. it also feels a little bit like if you if you know the context uh, outside of the movie itself, it almost feels a little bit like Zolowski performing an emotional exorcism on himself because mm -hmm. he, at the time that he conceived and executed this movie, was going through his own uh, right. pretty pretty intense divorce. Right. And so I went into this movie. I hadn't <laughs> read. This is my first time seeing it. I hadn't mm -hmm. read the synopsis, and I, so I only had two pieces of information. It's a movie called Possession and it has Sam Neill in it. Um, I hadn't seen the poster or anything. I basically just went in super blind. So like in that first act, all I knew was that, or what I assumed was that it was going to be the story about him not being able to let her go. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like, okay, which Possession, is somewhat he's, true. Yeah. But like, so for me, the, the big performances were leading to him essentially like, probably kidnapping her or something to that effect being like you are my possession because up before that point we got him being like is it this other man and this other guy calling and saying she's mine well, so, yeah yeah um, to, be to be possessed so Can you possess someone right yeah um and then it just becomes a whole nother thing Mm -hmm. um, and before the weirdness is present possessed, yeah. even from the beginning though because one thing that I feel like nobody talks all that much about when they talk about possession is the fact that right up front we're introduced to this idea that Sam Neill's mark is some type of secret agent right and yeah. we, don't, we don't really know specifically for whom he's working or what his missions are something to yeah, do yeah. with some like toxic liquid 
or something. Well, it's just why he was gone for so long. Why, he, you know. And it's just, it's there as window dressing. Like, yeah. the movie's not, ever, it never becomes about but that. But it's in the synopsis. Right. And even when, even when those elements yeah. towards the end of the movie start to come back into the story, the movie yeah. never really becomes about that. It's or about, just, like, the, uh, the private investigator and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. It's just all stuff that's, that's there. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of my big questions is, what does Sam Neill do? Like, I was... <laughs> and from from the context, yeah. like, I had assumed that maybe he was a, like, a spy during, like, the Cold War, maybe? Because he, he's like, oh, you know, back when I was fighting the war, well, you know, whatever that means. Uh, that's not the line at all. But, <laughs> but is he um, supposed to be American? Is he, though? Because, like, no, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think it's. So. Uh, no, no, no. I think it's He's all pretty German. ambiguous. Yeah. yeah, but it's like no, I, I like that. It's like this, like it's just a, it's a, it's a international film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, they're all speaking English. But yeah. it also the the background is very much it's French German. Yeah. Well, French, but it's very much cold. It feels very Cold War yeah. Berlin in the setting. No, but the, also, and also we uh, we should talk about the setting a little bit because setting is always you know. And the way, like, we we referenced the way it was shot, but one thing that consistently was blowing me away that I absolutely loved, and, like, yeah, of course, the big thing with this movie that always gets brought up uh, consistently from anything else is the performances. Yeah. And the movie highlights the performances by essentially stripping almost everything else away. You're typically shooting, a lot of these scenes are in uh, wides, and they just let them play out, so the actors get to ramp up while the one take is progressing. But additionally... In these wides, you're shooting these really big rooms. Like the room at the beginning when he's talking to his like secret agent superiors. Mm-hmm. They're sitting at a desk basically in a corner of this massive empty mm-hmm. room. And that's pretty consistent with much of the production design in the rest of the movie. It's it's big spaces but big empty spaces. So your focus is immediately and solely drawn yeah. to the actors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like specifically, you brought up the the cafe scene, mm-hmm. and I took note on the way it was shot. In that, like, usually when you have these two people talking scene, it's just like them right across from each other. But they made a point to have it be this kitty corner yeah. uh, shot where, like, you see the full uh, room where everyone behind them, and they get to talk to each other. But you get to explore all these other angles, um, and but. In the end, it's really just focused on them. Yeah, and there's no, like, extras when there doesn't need to be, you know. And also just to show, like, their own feeling of being in their own bubble. Uh, I like that, yeah, we're in these big spaces, but, like, it doesn't matter if there's no one around. Right. There's only people around when they need to be there, you know. They're not there just to, like, create, like... Who knows if, like, the real-life version of that story, they're in a crowded cafe and they're having this conversation, that thing happens. To them, there was no one around. Right. And so there's no one around. It's like a play. And it's it makes this, even though the performances are incredibly honest in how visceral they are, it gives the whole thing an even greater heightened sense of surreality. It mm. almost feels like, at one point, like, I was, I was taking some notes while I was watching it, and at one point, I, I wrote down, like, it feels like everybody is in dioramas. It almost right. feels like, it feels weirdly, not stagey is the wrong word, but it's the first word that comes to mind. And it feels like you're watching... To an extent, you're watching actors in a in a constructed world, but it still feels so uncomfortably immediate. It's like the line is so blurred between the real and the surreal. Do you do you find this movie to be you know kind of schizophrenic in that like sometimes it feels like it's like hyper real, like sometimes it feels like it's 
so it's trying to be so realistic that it's surreal and sometimes it feels like it's a play yeah it feels theatrical it feels like it does both and the director's just kind of you know just feeling out based on his emotions of the day and just based on his own intuition what is right for the scene and, and it creates this kind of schizophrenic feeling that is important for the movie because the movie story is schizophrenic as well. We do. We jump around a lot and we're jumping around. It feels like we jump around a lot like with the camera, like from one POV to the other. Yeah. Because I feel like to an extent, I get your your POV character is mostly Mark through this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it feels like the camera definitely exists outside of him and is jumping around constantly as far as what its point of focus is. And sometimes it'll jump. It'll be these wides. And like you say, it'll be these sideways tracking. And then sometimes we'll punch in, but we're still in a medium and the shot will just follow them around through the apartment while they're screaming at each other. Sometimes yeah. it jumps into somebody's POV. There's this one, I think my favorite line reading in the entire movie, they're, they're fighting. It's after... Mark visits Heinrich and Heinrich beats him up and he comes back and he hits uh, Anna and he grabs her and the camera jumps into her POV and Sam Neill goes, do you know what that was for? The lies. Yeah. And then she's like, she says, then you'd have to hit me some more. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like she watching so much and it almost feels like the camera is a participant when it get when they really go at each other it almost feels like the camera is a participant yeah. in their fight yeah I, I before i forget about this i want to give a sub suggestion of this movie called the untamed which is kind of a completely it, it it credits zulaski at the end it says it's dedicated to zulaski it came out last year and it's also about uh it's a mexican film also about a a woman who's obsessed with having sex with a monster uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. Is it like? Yeah. But is it like? Do you see the monster? Yeah, yeah. The monster's even more. Uh, it's it's just it's it's a little bit more like artfully done, and it's a little bit more like kind of like uh, it's not as schizophrenic. Uh, it's definitely uh, way more controlled. But and the monster is you see it about just as much. It's the monster like gives everyone like the best like everyone's obsessed with having sex with the monster. Actually, lots of people have sex with the monster in this movie. But the thing is, the great. monster, the monster yeah, gets, and the monster sold. gets bored of people, and then kills them. <laughs> when the monster gets bored of having sex with the people in the movie, the monster kills them and then moves on to a new person. Sure, like I you do. It. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's what I, I do too. My review of that movie is like, I feel like it's worth it, regardless of the circumstances, to have sex with that monster. Men and women have sex with the monster. So they make a compelling argument. Yeah, it's like, eh, I mean, like at least you get to experience pure pleasure sure. for once in your life, right? Right. Um, so the monster's actually doing them a favor yeah. because it's like, you'll never experience anything better than me. Goodbye. Yeah, you yeah. peaked. We're right. done. Yeah. yeah. Um, that movie's The Untamed. It came out last year. <laughs> cool. I will check that out. Yeah. <laughs> Make Tari um, talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of the monster, uh, like I feel like the monster is completely and utterly symbolic. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. No, we're getting into undertones now, baby. Yeah. Um, because, like, if you view it from Mark's perspective, um, I mean, the monster, and, and you don't think of it as a literal monster. I mean, the monster is essentially the what the other person in an affair would appear to be. Like, you view this thing as this monstrous creature that destroyed your marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the end, it could also end up being that the person was just looking for another version of you. And so that like kind of tracks with how the monster ends up looking 
like Sam Neill or I guess Mark in this case. Yeah, it seems like by the time we get to the end of the movie and you've created this doppelganger out of yeah. this monster, and this of course brings me back to Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks. No, there's a bit of doppelganger. I was like, when I watched it, I was like, oh shit. Twin well, they Peaks. both they both have yeah. doubles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark's doppelganger, obviously, we see at the end of the movie, but also Anna is doubled by Helen throughout. But uh, the Mark, the the monster is essentially a golem, right? Is made or a, a tulpa, as it turns mm-hmm. out, um, is essentially a double created for some purpose. And Tari, mm-hmm. like you say, like maybe it is to to put the face of her lover on something that embodies everything that she she credits with destroying the marriage from her perspective. Right. And I feel like that double is. Uh, I mean, I can't speak specifically to Zalowski's intentions, having never discuss them with him personally, but it seems like he is meant to embody like male toxicity in total. And mm. it seems like Anna throughout, uh, I mean, she's a little, a little messed up in general, but it seems like she's got this fixation on male toxicity like that. Yeah. That does it for her. Yeah. Um, I mean, what do you think? Um, well, your view checks out. Like I, I like that you could kind of, it works as a literal monster and it works as a metaphorical monster. I think when things only work as the metaphor and they don't work literally, that's not any fun. Yeah. Right. Um, so I like that it, it, it works metaphorically. You could put, you could put whatever you want on it. I was mostly just, I take things super literally, you know, I'm like, very. I, I love to take it literally. I don't like, I, maybe on the fifth viewing of the movie, I'll start thinking about like what, you know, it represents this, but um. <laughs> well, again, like uh, I'm gonna like, you... reference Twin Peaks again. It's like Bob, right? How Bob right. is an abstraction, Bob is, evil, yeah. is, a, is essentially a metaphor for evil in human form. But yeah. also within the story, Bob is very much a literal demonic presence. Yeah, yeah. And I and I do this like uh, the character's obsession with like who can be like better at like sex. It's it mirrors that the other guys. No, it's actually it's it's this thing that you'll never be better than. Right. You'll never be better than this monster, right. and you have to get over that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you see you see these shots like of of this monster, this like foam rubber Lovecraftian monster. But at the end of the day, it's still a monster, right? Like having yeah. full on just having sex with Isabella Gianni, and she's like the monster it, can't raise a kid, right? But it will in be better the, at sex theory. than you, yeah. Um, but it's this monster, right? And it's it, the monster was created by Carlo Rambaldi, who also I think the next year would create ET. So oh, that's wow. weird. Uh, I think he also did a lot of the effects work for the original Alien, like based on the Giger designs. I think he was the one who actually designed mm. the creature. Um, but yeah, we get these full-on shots of the monster just, just, yeah. just going doing, it down. doing monster It's a great, yeah. great monster. Uh, I'm glad that he got his tentacle monster stuff out of the way before getting to those movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, um, know, you gotta grow up somehow. That's true. I guess so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of raising a kid... Um, these are my segues, though. By the way, oh, yeah? these are, these are real good. good segues. Yeah, uh, he took a class. Yeah, yeah, he did yeah, a segue yeah. workshop. Um, always <laughs> how, begin how with expensive was that speaking workshop? of this, uh, <laughs> very expensive. Yeah. Uh, I had I had to mortgage my house just yeah. to take that class. Um, I don't good know. Thing that... you have this glass of almond milk to support you. Yes, uh, I mean, well, almond milk is what keeps me going. Thanks yes. to almond milk for sponsoring Tari's health. Yes, his well-being. Uh, I wouldn't be here if not for almond milk. I love it so much. It's great. It is like my tentacle monster. Almond milk is without almond milk, there would be no missing out. That's true. You guys are all missing out on that delicious, delicious almond milk flavor. Now with a taste of honey. And kids love it too. Heck yeah. 
especially with Cheerios. That was the- my segue <laughs> <laughs> to the kids. Um, uh, you talk about Bob. Yes, I want to yeah. talk about Bob um, because I feel like he's so. I feel like in a way. He's instrumental to the relationship, but he's so ancillary in the movie, which is a bummer because, like, the person who would be most affected by everything happening in this movie is that child, and they kind of gloss over the fact that he's having night terrors about it. Well, he's he's basically just a device to keep Anna coming back because it's like, oh, why shouldn't she just leave? Oh, wait, there's a kid, so she's we got it keep her in the story right and now yeah. now more drama could happen but of course the irony being it would probably be a lot better for bob in the long run if she stopped coming around because every yeah. time she does they draw blood from each other yeah <laughs> yeah and which is like why mark at the beginning is like i'm not going to come back just because it'll damage the kid and then she ends up doing exactly what he intended not to do and she also would always come back like a hurricane she yeah. just roll in just destroy the apartment and then leave. Yeah. You know, <laughs> goddamn monster. She's the monster in this movie. I agree. There could have been more Bob. You know, this, this movie is like, it's, you love it for its highs. You know, the yeah. highs go higher than many, many films. Yes. You know, I, and I wanted to say before this, this director, the only one, the only person that I, I'm reminded of sometimes is um, Abel Ferrara. And like, you know, you watch Abel Ferrara movies for their like schizophrenic highs. And just like the feeling of like, who made this movie? A madman made this movie. I don't know. Zulaski might not be a madman. Abel Ferrara, I, I heard, is you know, very nice right now. But, uh, you know, in the <laughs> 90s, I'm sure he was like, you know, a madman. Well, there are um, moments, right? And it's moments where like there are reference like seeing the face of God and like you see the Christ face, right? That reminded me of moments in Bad Lieutenant for sure. So I feel like there's a, a direct line. Yeah. And I was talking more, but like, I guess like they both deal with like, you know, uh, carnal desires yeah but also just like the feeling that you get from just like like what kind of energy was there on set you know? yeah really like god that must have been a super weird both of those must have been yeah. a super weird set yeah. to mm-hmm. be on and so you know bob what do you feel how do you feel about bob i don't feel that much about bob because as you say like bob is mostly a device yeah and bob is like, yes, he's there to keep Anna coming back, but I think he's also there, I guess, symbolically, broadly, to represent that what everybody, what the two of them should be doing in that situation is focusing on their kid. Because, yeah, the kid is the one most likely to be affected in a truly traumatic way long term as a result of the violent altercations between his parents that he is forced to bear witness to. But, of course, these people are not really considering Bob like Mark whenever he brings up Bob to Anna it's not even when his words are you're not caring for your son why aren't you there for your son it's not earnest he's not really making this point in in good faith he's just throwing it at her like Bob really even even within their relationship Bob is a device he's a device that essentially Mark can use to punish Anna for her actions or her lack of actions. Right. Um, and then you get this gruesome, like, suicide. Like, I've never seen child suicide in a movie. And this is the first time that, like, even... even is that what you think happened? I you... feel like it's a little unclear, but yeah. he does, like, at the very end of the movie, he hops into the tub and just face down in the yeah. water just floats there. Yeah. Yes. I think he's just, like, a nihilistic kid now because he just, like, lives in a world where nothing makes sense. Right, yeah. <laughs> but like, 
also, but he stopped moving while yeah. he was just floating in that How water. Long? Yeah. Like, so the people that are listening to this, like, I guess, like, they don't care if, you know, the entire movie gets spoiled. Or maybe no. they're supposed to, like, hear the first part of it and be like, I'm going to watch watch this movie and then listen to this one's a little tricky because it's harder to find my hope is if people uh, people want to keep up with the show they either have Mm. seen the thing already or they're incentivized to go check it out because yeah we spoil the crap out of everything right yeah Yeah, we're so there's like what it's like a 10 second shot of a kid face down in a tub he like does he like trip into the tub or he jumps no no he he intentionally hops in he hops in first i was like he just tripped and then he just like is no he hops in the tub when the doppelganger shows up at the door and hannah's going towards the door you hear bob over and over saying don't open don't open don't open and then now he wants to die out of fear it's either it's either he wants to die and like yeah it's very clearly meant just to how surreal is a sight of a suicidal four-year-old how old is bob supposed to be like eight, yeah, eight he's real young. At the old, yeah, six to eight, we'll say. Yeah, he's seven. There we go. <laughs> there seven we go. Years old. Yeah, and he jumped in the tub face down. But it I don't think so... he's. I think he's gonna get out before he dies. Well, because it happens so quickly. Yeah, like he hops in and immediately he's just limp floating there. Yeah. So my, I he just want. He, almost, yeah, it was like an escape. It's like he wanted to shut everything out and it, he's out of considering fear. death. Right like, now. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's definitely something that he is not. Uh, averse to at this point in yeah. his young life. Mm, you think Bob? You think he's yeah. dead? Oh man, he's, he's I feel dead, bad for man. Bob. Um, I mean, look, if Bob's not dead, I feel like he doesn't have a super bright future ahead of him because not only is the doppelganger there, and it, the doppelganger really behaves in the limited amount of screen time he has, very soullessly, yeah, and very yeah. much just doesn't just doesn't care. And and for all we know is largely invincible as well. So he's <laughs> he's trying to come in through the door. Yeah. I don't think this bodes particularly well for Hannah once he gets in there. I can't imagine that it bodes particularly well for Bob either, even if the doppelganger doesn't kill Bob. I can't imagine that that he plans to raise a child. Right. And at the same time, you hear all these sirens and the gunfire, all this chaos descending upon that building. No, even if Bob is alive in that tub, I can't imagine that the immediate future holds many positives for him. Yeah. I had read, there was a review on birth movies, death where is it the one, uh, is it the one, is it the schlock corridor one or is it the, the it perfected acting and it's terrifying. Um, schlock corridor. I think. Okay. Um, where they, their interpretation of it was that essentially these doppelgangers coming together were the, uh, were to represent the, the parents coming back as their like idealized versions mm-hmm. And knowing how toxic that relationship was, um, Bob's only course of action was to kill himself, knowing that like the relationship was going to end in disaster anyway. And that's what the end of the world also symbolized. Right. Was that it, them getting together was the, the end of the literal world, but also his world. Um, so that was their interpretation. I'm just... Yeah, I saw. I saw it as like Romeo and Juliet at the end. You know, yeah. They just, they just like they die together, but then you know, of course, there's still a version of them that's living, but Mm. that's a little different. But I was like, I was like, I was. Yeah. And two to circle back, they die in this insanely over-the-top hail of gunfire, (laughs) and it happens in large part because at the climax of the movie, this weird secret agent thing that was being threaded quietly throughout, especially in the early sections, the end of the world. It seems to come back around fully, and something that I didn't pay attention to until I rewatched this movie last night, 
and something that I keyed into for the very first time, and I feel silly that I didn't key into it because they make a big deal of showing you. This dude who comes back near the end to tell Mark, you know, when he when he sees the dead dog in the water and the guy's like, this dog didn't die of old age. And he's basically trying to fold Mark back into that life of espionage. Yeah. That dude shows up at the building with all of the people who kill them with this gunfire. The dude makes it a point well, the movie makes it a point to show the dude taking his shoe off. And you're like, why is this dude taking his shoe off? And maybe it's one of the just the weird touches that you see in this movie, like when, when Anna's on a train and the homeless guy just helps himself to a banana out of the bag. I love that scene. And, right, and it's great. Yeah. And no one comments on it. No one within the scene even looks over. It just happens. So in my head, I went, well... It's well, just like, it's, it's good to have the world building. You right. know, there isn't that... What doesn't get talked about in this movie is the world, really. In uh, like the location that they choose to film in, and all. Well, and so talking about the world building, it's hard when to this talk guy, about that. But when this guy takes off his shoe, I guess every other time I'd watch this movie, I just chalked it up to all right. That's a weird thing to focus in on, but I guess it's no weirder than the dude taking the bananas. And then it occurred to me, the guy's wearing pink socks. Yeah. Early in, the, I'd never connected these dots before early in the movie when mark is talking to his superiors i think the last line of the scene is the guy at the end of the table asks him does our subject still wear pink socks Holy we shit. never we never mm-hmm. come back yeah. to that so i guess and talking about world building yeah. quietly in the background there's maybe a, a battle happening between these two factions of agents yeah. possibly that mark ends up in the middle in and i guess when pink sock guy approaches him he's trying to flip him from one side to the other and like the movie movie is about none of this at all but it's You've it's got happening an eye for detail man but it's happening yeah it becomes a, like a different movie for like 10 minutes yeah. where he is essentially trying to wreck these cops and this, these spies like he he yeah. uh, there's also this amazing moment where mark gets in the cab towards the end and it's once like chaos has begun to consume the entire story and his world he gets in this cab and he's got the guy at gunpoint but he's basically just like i'm gonna jump out you drive into this police car as hard as you can and the guy doesn't the driver doesn't even seem that perturbed he's mm-hmm. just like okay and does it <laughs> I would like to imagine that it was that driver's like last day on the job. He's like, yeah. I'm quitting. And then this happens. He's like, hell yeah, I'm into this. Because, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it like it gets real bonkers in that moment. Because like he does that three cars blow up. He mm. gets shot a bunch of times, kills the other dudes, and then just like drags like, like, his bloody body away. It's hilarious that there's this whole... That whole other element to this movie that you said never gets talked about. It's almost like some people are like fast forwarding parts. Like they're like, there's what's the spy shit? I'm watching a movie about a girl that loves to have sex with a monster. Right. That's what I want. And like what we haven't even touched on is like yeah. she's she's having sex with this monster, but she's also it's implied very heavily is creating this monster and nourishing this monster by killing people right and this is this all comes out of the divorce story like mark is convinced correctly that his wife is being unfaithful and so he hires a private investigator to tail her and the private investigator tails her to this other apartment where she kills him with a big broken bottle and i guess like chops him up we see the body parts in the fridge later but presumably feeds them to this monster Mm -hmm. to help the monster grow and then we see the private detective's lover try and track him down and ends up meeting the same fate so it's yeah it all it all spins out of this relatively grounded relatable well hopefully not too relatable but somewhat realistic divorce story 
and then within that we've got like that's what makes it work right, right. But we've got like a secret agent war happening in the background we've got this lovecraft monster we've got essentially like serial murder to feed the lovecraft monster but yeah like like you just said it works because it's grounded in something that feels honest yeah if not realistic honest and i would argue that like i think realism is a little bit overrated in general i think you need it to be honest yeah. if it's not honest it just, it feels well, like realism bullshit. yeah it's different there's like the social realism and there's like like there's all all types of different realism i my favorite is like this like thing that i think is so elusive and hard to hard to grasp is like hyper realism which is to me is like abel ferrara's movies are hyper realistic gummo is a hyper realistic yeah. movie so it's like it's so real that it's surreal and it's, it's insane you're right that is insanely difficult to yeah. do yeah because you're just like you're just basically pushing it it's about what feels real but uh you're you're only using the same tools you will use to create realism but you're just pushing everything as far as you can while have it still be specific enough to be believable right um the, that word it's like i don't know if that it's that no one could really agree on what like hyper realism is in like movies but in paintings it means like a very very detailed like uh it's like photorealistic but of like like a mutated person so it's like i'm drawing you as like let's say your uh cheekbones are like huge like in brazil yeah uh, and I draw it in this like really, really uh, like like photorealistic, and then I show it to someone. That's hyperrealism in painting. But so, so then my question in response to that would be, what? Where is the line then between hyperrealism and surrealism? Because I right. feel like if you walk that line even a step further than what you just described, you're into surreality. Sure, it's. I don't know. It's sort of just like it's all it's all words. It's but all like, it's all that, abstract. So it's like to me, it's like what is the feeling of a of a movie that is like about real emotions, but shows me all these insane images that I kind of believe, except I don't believe the monster. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like kind of going back to your question. I feel like hyper realism always has a foundation in the real, like taking that photorealistic image and then just pulling specific parts out to to heighten them to highlight them whereas i feel like surrealism is kind of taking what is real and then bending it to like for i guess if i were to take a surreal example it would be that same image but instead of kind of highlighting the cheeks it's like making the skin a different color and also right. like warping whatever the background is so like it's it's Speed not Speed racer yeah. right <laughs> so it's it's not kind of highlighting any specific thing but taking what is real and also warping it as as a whole but what would you call this because this movie is sort of a total blender because it's like you could argue that it's whatever like a magical realism right magical realism is like you insert one weird thing into a normal circumstance right yeah so it's just like it's we're sitting at this table except there's a dog that's recording everything on the computer mm -hmm. and telling us to stop like the, or I don't know. Like, yeah. There's, there's just one thing about it. That's off. Right. And that's what magical realism is. Right. Like, and, but normally it's like, yeah. totally like it's like a social real, it's like so like um, sparse and stark that it's like, we're in a very like realistic world. And one thing is totally different. This feels like everything feels heightened 
And there's one thing that's totally off too. Yes. But also there's one thing that's totally, I assume you're referring to the monster. Yeah. But even once you put the monster off to the side, there's quite a bunch of of other weirdness that is not weird to the extent of, of the Lovecraft monster, but is still really bizarre and, and seems so removed from what, from what is suggested the core of the story is when you start the story. So yeah, it really does create this odd blender effect. Like you say, well, it's, you know, it's brave to make movies, uh, especially like, uh, yeah, it's brave to make movies that don't necessarily can't be contained in one genre, you know, especially now, like, you know, with like Netflix and stuff, it's like, you need to be in one genre at the video store. Like, obviously like they'll put it wherever they want They'll put it in the horror section, you know? Right. But, um, uh, you know, some people that are bloodthirsty that are watching this movie don't may not want to watch the first half an, first hour. Right. Yeah. Not um, and it gets you know there's a lot of gnarliness and there's a lot of red stuff on display in the movie, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it it comes in fairly late. Um, and also just like it's the tone of it. It's like one scene is one thing, one scene it's the other thing. But I think it creates this overarching tone of like I keep saying like it's like a schizophrenic tone. Well, yeah, and it does feel like you can't. Like a break in reality, especially like an incredibly specific, massive, crazy break from reality is always going to be more effective as long as if you have effectively established the reality beforehand. So, yeah, maybe you would have hooked some people like if they're gorehounds, you might have hooked some people earlier by showing like the the scene where they're cutting on themselves with the electric knife in the first 15 minutes. But I think yeah. it's so much more effective, so much more jarring because they hold all of that stuff back. And the rules of the world aren't clearly set. Right. Which sort of surprises you every single time something happens. It's even the spy stuff like that comes full circle at the end. You know? Right. It's like you're, you're always aware that like, all right, something's up. Yeah. And you know, you obviously know like something's very wrong in the interpersonal dynamic between the two main characters, but with the world. Like yeah. you say, the rules don't feel set. And right. And that's why the- it's hard for us to even label it as, is it this? Is it surrealism? Is it it's like, we don't, I don't know. Obviously, we don't know. Like, you know only the director if i read a bunch of quotes from him he's the person i trust honestly uh well, yeah. i'm just we're just waxing you know? but and to your point though about how this movie is yeah it's a bit schizophrenic and yeah it's really hard to put in a specific box as far as one genre because it's a lot of different things yeah uh when this came out it did not find much of an audience didn't find much of an audience in france i think where it was originally released Definitely at first did not find much of an audience here in the States. And I read that one U.S. distributor uh, essentially completely recut the movie so that it was largely and almost entirely focused on the gory stuff. Like mm, they stripped out course. a lot of what. And I'm going like, well, how long could that possibly have been? But it did. Obviously, it didn't work because none of that means anything without the anchor of the reality. This and the wasn't, anchor and this wasn't world. his first movie. He had made a bunch of movies like The Devils was like a. Was it the devil? Yeah, it was a like a successful movie, uh, or you know, I've heard of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like, so this is what his like fourth film, and it and it, and it doesn't and it gets recut by the U.S. distributor. Yeah, um, but but I think they could be forgiven for not quite knowing how to sell this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I get, I disagree with the decision wholeheartedly but i understand the logic that might have informed that decision yeah because if you chop out most of what's there except for the gory monster stuff at least okay well we know how to sell that but then you don't have a movie right 
I mean, I guess technically if you, I'm trying to think how that would have worked. And I feel like maybe the marketing, you're imagining the marketing campaign I, of, the, of the more movie. just like the overall cut. Cause there, I feel like there are certain things that you absolutely need. Uh, and there are things that you, uh, like if you were trying to just cut straight to the, the gore, I'm making air quotes. Um, I mean, I guess you could get rid of like some of the times that she came back and, and it's like Sam Neill and, uh, and Isabella just kind of arguing like you could cut some of that down and maybe if you like minimize the Heinrich part uh you could no you, you could, can't, can't minimize, minimize Heinrich, Heinrich. Look, I Guys, was literally I was just I about to go we really haven't talked much about Heinrich except well, in he passing. says that crazy line about God right yeah where he saw he saw God it's like where he's trying to convey like he saw what happened he goes to the apartment where Anna is where she's putting this monster together and he's trying he's this bizarre scene where uh Mark finds him at the bar and he's just complete before Mark kills him uh where he's talking about like you you haven't seen what I've seen just completely losing his his business but that's only it's really only the first scene where you see Heinrich where he seems like all right I can't think of a better way to phrase it than any other time you see Heinrich beyond the first scene, it almost seems like the performance he's giving, he exists outside the barriers of his own body. He's very like, he's very all over the place and like airy and ethereal. He could be, if you told me that actor was real drunk while they were shooting a couple of these scenes, I would believe you. Yeah. Um, but he's good. You can't cut Heinrich down. I know. Um, I'm. That was, I, again, I, I'm just trying to find places where if I were a studio exec, I would be like, well, I don't get this movie, so let's get yeah. rid of the weird guy and the arguments and just cut straight to the monster. Let's just have two hours of monster. Um, no, I actually really enjoy Like, I feel like Heinrich had a full arc in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, he he was the like he was the most casual. And you don't uh, get that from third characters much. You don't get that true. from the third lead. Yeah, no, but like, to, like it's to this movie's credit, right, that there is so much happening just, oh, yeah. just beyond what you're looking at that the movie's not about, but it's there. And like Heinrich is one of those. Yeah. Like he was, of all the characters, he was the most comfortable with himself. Like he understood his role, yeah. not just in the He's movie, fatalist. but like, yeah, yeah in, in the whole scheme of his universe. Like he knew, like he was fine with, uh, you what is the word I'm looking for? I, don't, I guess cuckolding. He's a big cuckolding <laughs> fan. Um, but he's not a cuck. No. no. Never. No. He makes Mark a cuck. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is that is twice as many cucks as I want, ever wanted on this show. And now we have, now we have two. Yeah. That's plenty. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that's it. That's the end of the... No. Um, <laughs> and we're folding the show now. Um, um but yeah, and even just like his relationship with his mom, that moment between Mark and his mom where she's like, I had to like this person because, you know, I support my son, whatever he does. And him being such a free spirit, you know, I, I just am on his side no matter what. And I really enjoyed that. When you reminded me, so the mother is mostly there to respond to the death of her son and poison herself. And it makes me think of how Every with the exception of the characters tied to the spy business, basically every character in the movie exists to fall victim to the toxic relationship between Mark and Anna. 
Mm-hmm. Whether whether it's Bob who it's may or may not die at the end, or all of these characters that literally die, the whether it's Heinrich, whether it's the private investigator, the private investigator's lover, um, Margie, who we haven't even mentioned yet, they all they're yeah. in the story, they're They've part of the story, possessed, to, but by to the be, relationship, but to be casualties <laughs> of this horrible relationship, yeah. and all of these characters, I think, have separate stories that are going on that I mean Heinrich I think more so than a lot of them but you could tell a story about this private detective and his lover like living as as a gay couple in 1980s Cold War Berlin and what their story is like and this horrible thing that happens to both of them at the end of this tragic love story like you could do you could if you were inclined which no one is you could tell a whole like interconnected universe of these stories you could do like a Zulowski Marvel universe where each one of these people has their individual story and they all converge in possession like it's Avengers Mm -hmm. and then the movie culminates in this shot where every character is standing back to back while the camera pans around them and they're all doing the miscarriage from their head right and it's dope Mm. <laughs> I would. I'm not gonna lie. I would watch that movie. Kind um, of like picture picture the Avengers, but they're all doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm already selling the rights to the <clears throat> the poster. And, and it's just the trailer is just Walt Disney Pictures presents, and it just cuts to that shot, and all what six of them are like, <laughs> with like shit flying everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I want it. Cool. Can well, you can you make that for us? Maybe. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. We should, we should talk a little bit about just like the, the life of the movie. You know, it's a cult movie. Yeah. It's a movie that was made in 1981 that we're talking about right now. Yes. Uh, but it wasn't well received when it came out. I, th- I always wonder why movies, like you can't plan on making a cult movie. You can't be like, okay, we're making a cult movie. Right. No one's going to like it now. But well, what is cult movie? It just ends up happening. What does it mean? It just means that people love it. It means regardless if a lot of people love it, people love it. But then you could argue, just to use the same example, but if that's the only definition, you could argue that Avengers is a cult movie, and I would suggest it isn't. But a lot of people love it. But just let's say, like, if a movie comes out and, like, no one cares about it, but a thousand people love it, you know, like, uh, that movie will be a cult movie. So, concentrated but passionate following. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I feel like the, the, not textbook definition, but essentially the main definition is that it had a low box office, mm-hmm. um, and then upon home home entertainment, no, home distribution, um, <laughs> that's when it usually makes its, its resurgence. So, like, those are the main criteria. So, uh, I just, like, th- this was a, interesting because it's, like, I feel like when I was younger, I watched so many cult movies, you know, whatever, Eraserhead, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Um, Howard the Duck. Exactly. Howard yeah. the Duck and Eraser are my two favorite films. <laughs> and, um, but I didn't, like, not until, like, a couple years ago did I even hear about this movie. And, and I was saying before, like, I hope people check it out because it, it, even re- if it's not a movie I watch every day, it does shape the way I, like, see movies and feel as if I was just so happy that I knew that this movie existed and someone did this. Uh, and it's a very specific feeling that you get from this that you don't get from other movies. And I would say the only, just a few other directors like, you know, that have the same energy. And, um, and I, and I was wondering like, why, why didn't anyone show this to me? It's just like, you have to be seeking something so specific of like, no, I want a movie that does like, I, 
like I, I want like the harder drug, you know? Yeah. And it's a movie that, like you say, like most people don't seem to know about, or if they know about it, they're only aware of it fairly vaguely. And like we were saying before, it's, it can be difficult to track down in the States yeah. because most physical releases that are out of print. Well, yeah. Uh, but when you find a movie like that, especially if it really like does so, like jars your brain the way this movie does, then it's really exciting for me to go like to go to the next person and be like, "Have you seen this movie? Oh, yeah. you got to check." That. I mean, that's like the impetus for why we do this show yeah. is that feeling. But it's not like possession is one where you know if you go to somebody and you say, "Check out," you probably haven't seen. I don't know. The one that just popped into my head was Mother, uh, Aronofsky's Mother, right? Oh, Even a if they have a cult film, <laughs> I, you could argue, yeah, distributed by Paramount, um, right? Uh, but you could argue, right, that a one-to-one uh, -one metaphor. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, given the fervor of the conversation around yeah. it, it's likely that somebody has heard enough about it that there's sure. a chance it it colors their perception going in. Most people don't know much of anything about possession, and so they can have this totally fresh organic experience and the other thought that i just had is it's weird that if they know about possession it's probably through seeing it memed and it's interesting mm -hmm. that now we live in an era where you can start with a meme and work backwards True. to the work hey as long as they can see it right yeah um it is a shame that's not more widely available i don't know what the deal is with that i'm not sure and i don't know if it's actually got i don't know what company owns the rights to it if any company owns the rights to it yeah. like i said like mondo put out a really excellent blu-ray of yeah. it but that's, that's out of print now and you know like i i chose this movie because when you said what's a movie that i want to tell people about or like i like i this is like the most recent movie that blew my mind that i hadn't heard of and i was so upset that i didn't that no one ever told me about it but it just felt like somehow it just like slipped through but and i don't feel as if like i'm qualified to even talk about it because there's just so much going on in the movie right and that's sort of even watching it this morning i was like what i really love about this is that like just like you know similar to twin peaks there's just so many layers to it yeah and there's so many more questions that you could be asking and also just like the intent behind it because <laughs> you're like is this supposed to be that? like what is it supposed to mean how much of it is intentional how much but regardless if it's intentional it's all like a miracle you know and and like you say like there is there's so many layers and there's so much detail and there's so many little ancillary touches that are not necessarily even important just little bits of color or weirdness and it's like like i said like I, i've seen this movie a few times now and every time i watch it i feel like i notice something different or at the very least it's something i've noticed before but i'm now thinking about it in a completely different way and i feel like there are movies that i watch over and over again that i really really love but i don't have that experience with them mm -hmm. it's it's, it's insanely impressive when somebody can put together a work that does so reward revisiting it. Yeah. I also, real quick, just because we hadn't, yeah. uh, wanted to just shout out the score real fast. And the score is very oh, minimal. Awesome. There's yeah. very, actually very little music in the movie, but there was, uh, uh, it was, uh, it's a nice Andre, recurring theme. Andre Krasinski did the music yeah. and there was one piece and you hear it over the opening titles at the beginning. And I believe you hear it over the end titles, uh, or like right before the end. Titles. Yeah, very minimal. Where I thought it was like I was rewatching. I was like, okay, it's gonna end, and then like, it didn't, because it, it the way they bring in the theme it makes it feel like it was gonna end, and then there was a few more scenes. And then but it also does fit exactly. One you say, minute like, of I believe end the, titles. The track is just main theme for possession. Theme, and it yeah. really sounds like oh, they made like an orchestral, yeah. an orchestral theme for this movie. Or very, it's really just minimal. It's like piano. I think it's only piano. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me. The sound of it reminded me very much of the scores that uh, Pino Donaggio would do for De Palma. 
Right. Like it reminded me a lot of, say, like a, some of the music in Blowout. Like the most iconic piece of music from Blowout that I forget the title of. We'll do an episode on Blowout at some point. Cause that oh, yeah. Dope. Blowout's great. Um, I mean, De Palma. You should do High Mom. I actually haven't seen High Mom. High Mom is incredible. I haven't seen like his first Mom, handful. Oh, I mean, De Palma is like one of the, also one of those directors that in for some reason was getting so shit on when I was in high school because like people were making fun of Scarface, saying it was like I look at Scarface and I'm like Scarface is amazing. Scarface is De really Palma good. is amazing. Like, and I watched High Mom. I was lucky enough to see it at a repertory screening on 35, and De Palma was there doing the Q and A for it, uh, and. I had never seen the movie and it was just like he was talking about how the movie got like people hated the movie. His mom actually went to go get a ticket to the movie and the ticket counter lady told her not to see it. (laughs) 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 Um, But it's like it's proto like De Niro like it's De Niro doing a performance. It's like a combination of like Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, like uh, the, the character is just. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a Travis Bickle, Rupert Pupkin com- combo. All right, I'm trying to picture now what that would be. Um, well, it's actually the same character he did in Greetings, De Palma's first movie. But yes, that's Hi right. Mom, Hi Mom, or Blowout. Blowout's a little more of like you haven't if you haven't seen Blowout, you should see it. And once you see Blowout, then you see Hi Mom. I would mm. say like if I was okay. starting somebody on De Palma, I mean the ones I would just start them with my favorites. So I would probably start them with. Probably in order, I would start them with Carrie, Carrie uh, Blowout, and Dress to Kill, probably. Right. And then you haven't if, seen High Mom. I have not seen High Mom. High Mom also has uh, the Be Black Baby section, which is its own section, which was like a bit of experimental theater that they were doing. The Be Black Baby section? Yeah, yeah, which a lot of people have seen just on YouTube. So it's just its own section of the movie. Um, All right. It's, it's an insane section. But uh, the movie is totally schizophrenic. Interesting. Guys, I'm going to wrap us out now. Yeah, yeah. Um, This has been a really fun episode for me. I hope you at home have also had fun. Um, You're not miscarrying from your head? <laughs> I mean, even if you are. Are you going to cut some of the stuff I'm, out, or are you going to keep the whole thing? I'm going to keep the whole, the whole thing. thing. I'm All just wondering where your techniques are. You, you cut some stuff out of it, or you keep it? Um, hey, hey, don't, sh- don't show our audience how the sausage is made, all right? Okay. Um, I, it's all live. <laughs> we all do it live. And no one's ever going to cut anything ever. Because um, you should put like a lot of score behind when I'm talking. Yeah. So it sounds more dramatic. Okay. Well, we're going to find that. that piece from yeah. Blowout, and every time Xander makes a point, we're going to pause. Like we're going to insert a pause, <laughs> yeah. and then the, this is going to drop. That's it. Should I just use you making? Yes, do that and just drop it. Drop it in. Yeah, I think I can loop that. It's been, it's been, it's been really fun. You know. Yeah. No. Thank you for joining us. Um, Can anyone find you any place ever? Yeah. If you Google my name, you could probably find some stuff. And it's Xander Robin. Yeah, Xander with an X, Robin, like a bird. And uh, I have some stuff on Vimeo. I'm here, actually, the reason why I'm, I don't live here. I live in New York, and I also live in Florida sometimes um, with my family. But I, I, I live in New York, and I, uh, I'm here. My short film is playing at AFI Fest. But by the time this comes out, it'll have already screened. That's, it's playing tomorrow. It called? It's called Lance Lazardi. It's actually a character that Lex and I were, uh, we 
we developed this in high school. Scrabble time. Yeah, I, I played a character named Lance in uh, one of our early efforts called Scrabble Time. And Lance um, <laughs> was wearing a giant orange cowboy hat that he refused to take off. But this Lance is obsessed with lizards. Okay. And time um, in like eight years. I made this film in Miami, and it, it, it was, um, it's awesome that it's playing in a festival that's also playing The Shape of Water and I, Tanya. Nice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, AFI is like the it's like the industry festival of LA, but they play a lot of weird shorts as well. So okay. And then is your uh, your feature? Are I we made not a cats? feature. Is are we not cats? Playing it, places it is it is going to be released in March, I believe, in 2018. Did you so get? Did somebody like actually pick it you is, up? It is. Yeah, we have a, a distribution deal, very small, but we will be on VOD, and I think there will be. A DVD. I don't know if there'll be a Blu-ray. I'm hoping. I might make my own Blu-ray. <laughs> do, if, do But you're going to do a commentary? you got to do a commentary. The, the, I already recorded half of the commentary, and I was recording it with um, my DP and the main actor, and an entire bottle of Jim Beam was drank, and then conversations were had like, this movie ruined my life. <laughs> Let me tell you why this ruined my life. And then I had to stop <laughs> it. So I'll probably fill in the rest with just like, you know, regular old, in this scene, we nah. did no, but it'll be the commentary will be dope, and there's some deleted scenes on it, and um, but you know we'll hope, we'll see if we get a uh, one week at the Lamel NoHo here that'd be cool, or uh, we're definitely doing a week in, in in New York in March. Yeah, I mean that'd be dope if uh, if it comes out and we can we can you can watch the movie, watch and talk yeah, about. Because yeah. I saw you you showed me a cut like two years two ago. Years it was ago. like yeah, and then it, it premiered last year at Venice Film Festival. It was it's weird. It was a movie that was embraced by Europeans. Like I was like I got close to getting into a lot of good festivals in in the U.S., but was ultimately not didn't get in, and then was lucky enough to get into the Venice Film Festival, which you know some people have heard of, but like I had to explain to my mom what it was. But like it's you know it's the oldest festival in the world, and it's like you know. Well, premiered there this year, I think The Shape of Water <laughs> won the Golden Lion there this year. That's where it premiered. So it's like um, that that was, uh, it was a crazy experience. And then we ended up playing in like uh, 11 countries and like 25 festivals. I went to like 15 of them. They're all good ones, you nice. know, played in some Regals, some AMC. The best screens we had of the movie because uh, we're at Regals and AMCs just like because I was only like referring to my experience of watching a movie in theaters growing up. You know, I wanted to look and sound good. But uh, so that's why I'm hoping we make a Blu-ray. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the movie's called Are We Not Cats? It'll come out in March. And you could probably like, you know, Google it and read a little bit about it. Okay. We, we just cut a trailer. That's like a new one. My, my friend who's a great trailer editor, Joe Hackman, he... Uh, We'll put some like reviews in it and everyone's like, Whoa, it seems like a real movie. I'm like, it is a real yeah. movie. Come on. <laughs> what do you think yeah. I'm doing? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Link, you link me to that if you have. Yeah. That. Sounds good. Cool. Awesome. So yeah. And you don't, you're not really, you don't do much of the social I media. I'm not thing. on Twitter. I, ha I am on Instagram. Well, where can people find your Instagram? It's Xander Robin. Just my, my name. Uh, I think there's an at symbol before it. Ooh. Uh, you fancy. could see, you could, if you, you know, you could see the, uh, the image of Godzilla on the star of on the Hollywood walk of fame that I posted today. Dope. Yeah. <laughs> Sold. Godzilla. Oh yeah. man. Uh, what about you, Lex? Where can they find you? Uh, as usual, I am all over social media at the Lex Michael. And you can find me at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. You can also find us 
uh, us being missing out at missing outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. We're all over all the podcast platforms, uh, Google Play Store, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, so if you love what we're doing, make sure to leave a comment. Uh, five stars if you love what we're doing. Five stars. Four stars if you don't like what if we're you doing. Hate us, four stars. Yes. Um, and leave a comment, and we read it here out on the air. We got a new uh, rating, but no comment. But it was a five star. So whomever you are, thank you for listening. Uh, and if and you that- hate me, I won't come back. Uh, yeah. It's okay, but don't com- but don't comment that. You could just you could just message me that online. I feel like that's worse. Oh yeah. Okay. Don't do it. Anyway, but you uh, guys, you guys are very much online. You know. Yeah. We are. You are the you're most, the most online. online of a lot of people I've met. You know. <laughs> um, Can so, we? Is that how we, we should pitch it that way? Yeah. Like when we try and sell people on our show, it's like we're the most online. online. We got. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like we're very online. Oh man. If there's a scale of one to zero oh. in terms of onlineness, it's one. Yep. <laughs> ones and zeros. You cut out all the bad jokes, and um, I'm, you could cut that part out too. There are no bad jokes. You could cut this part. No, cut this part. You could cut this part. The lies. <laughs> okay. Hey, you know. Bye. Thank you so much. Wow, what a wonderful audience. <laughs> hey, you know, in high school, are you still recording? No, you cut. Oh, we're still, still going. Recording. Listen, um, I wish you all the luck in all your careers. And um, you should go see the movie uh, I, Tanya out in theaters soon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>